0: Our Scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 24 reading verses 36 through 42 But concerning that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the Son but the Father only For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of man For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking Marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson. Very delighted you are here on this beautiful day. Along with Andrew, I give you a very warm greeting. If you're visiting, I give you a special warm greeting. I hope I get to shake your hand on the way out this morning. So again, thank you for being here and I hope you sense God's presence and you sense uh, the love we have for him and for you. So thank you for being here. If you knew the world would end tomorrow, what would you do today? End of the world predictions have been with us for a long time throughout human history from the Mayan calendars to Nostradamus, and some of us remember the Y2K Scare. We also have maybe encountered the latest psychic or cultic figure, and we all know that throughout human history, a great deal of effort has been expended trying to peer into the future of the world. Best-selling books like Left Behind, Apocalyptic Movies, just remind us of the deep fascination we have with this thing called the end of the world. Now, end-of-the-world thinking is not really just reserved for the sort of cultic, kooky fringe. Actually, it's quite mainstream. Have you noticed? Uh, Maybe you noticed that recently the Washington Post featured uh, the atomic clock being moved forward. Did you see that? The scientists moved it forward. The Washington Post uh, showed these very stern scientists looking at the certainty of the future of the world ending or seemingly very soon. And if you followed it since 1953, this clock has been tracking and now it's at two and a half minutes before midnight. So I want you to sleep better tonight, okay? (laughs) Just promise, uh, knowing that it's ticking. Uh, This idea of the end of the world is often permeating a culture and it certainly is today. Uh, In fact, Uh, I'm not very hip, but there is a new hip word. Should I tell it to you? You you ready? It's like this is a surprise for Tom to have a hip word. Uh, There are people who are preparing for the end around us. Maybe some right here. And they're called, you may know, preppers. Preppers. So we're all through our culture now, and it's a big thing about getting ready for the end. Preppers are people who are storing food and doing all kinds of things. And if you Google preppers... Right at the top, an amazing thing emerges. Now, don't do it now, okay, if you have your smartphone, I promise. <laughs> I know how that works. I'm getting around the block. But the New Yorker had an article on billionaire preppers. Did you see it? Billionaire preppers. So if you're a billionaire this morning, I want to see you, for, first of all. No. <laughs> but the title is Doomsday Prepare or Prep for Super Rich. And uh, this is no joke, by the way. I mean, this is really serious stuff. The article uh, is entitled, this, "This Sense of Doomsday, and it's highlighting the wealthy of America across the whole nation, from Silicon Valley to New York, who are really into being preppers. This particular New Yorker article featured uh, Steve Huffman, and that name might ring a bell for you. He's one of the richest of Silicon Valley. Uh, his company Reddit. He personally isn't uh, worth $600 million. That's a little bit of change. So in a little of his pocket change, he bought an old missile silo. This is a true story. And guess where the old missile silo is? North of Wichita, Kansas. So we're all safe. (laughs) Now, when you think about prepping for the end, you'll notice that this is a big deal. This is not some little, you know, cave somewhere. This is like Super Batman high-tech cave. And uh, this missile silo, I've never been in one, but they're pretty big and they have 15 stories. And there have been 15 underground luxury apartments built. Get this, they all sold very quickly for $3 million each, like that. Any buyers here just want to know, you know? And in, in Huffman's preppy cave, can I call it that? There are arsenals of weaponry. There's an underground vegetable garden, all kinds of sustainable power. And get this, what they said, and I don't know, this is a contradiction. Even an indoor pool, right? It's like underground, indoor, Do you do that? I don't know, underground, indoor. So this is top-notch. So whatever you think of preppers or the prepper movement, you have to give the preppers credit that they are preparing for the end. They're taking it seriously. So I'm going to ask you, how about you? Are you taking the end seriously? If you knew the world was ending tomorrow, what would you do today? That's an important question. Whether it's the end of the world or your demise in death, Readiness matters. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. Uh, And they ask him the question about the end of the world. This might be the first century prepper movement starting. What did Jesus have in mind when it came to readiness? Jesus is going to say, be ready. But does it mean to hunker down in sort of a survivalist mode? Or does it perhaps mean to pursue with reckless abandonment the latest advancement on your bucket list? Or does Jesus have something else in mind? If you brought a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. It's a church family. We have been walking through this wonderful book. And we want to set the context of where we are in the journey. It's now, as we've said, the very last week of Jesus' earthly life. And chapter 24 opens with Jesus' disciples asking him about the world's ending. Now, what is stunning for us is that Jesus' extended response to their question about the end fills, get this, two entire chapters of the 28 of Matthew. Now, this has to make us stop and say, Why does the gospel writer Matthew give so much attention in this book to this question? Perhaps Matthew thinks this is really important. So because of the proportion of it and the emphasis, we must raise the level of its interest and importance to us. Now that Jesus' disciples would have this deep and abiding and curious interest in the world's ending should not surprise us. If we go back into the first century, we understand that the Jesus' disciples, they were steeped in Old Testament text and prophecies. The Hebrew prophets understood that human history was moving to an ultimate crescendo, a day when the world would end. The curtain of history would be drawn. And this grand crescendo was a time of judgment and God setting the world right. And the heart of it was that God would send his Messiah to make the world right. So the coming of the Messiah and the day of the Lord, which, which the prophets described, were thought of as coming together in that moment. So you can imagine the excitement in the hearts of the disciples when they realized that Jesus is the Messiah. So in their framework, they're thinking, oh boy, Jesus is here. It's the Messiah. It's end. I mean, we're at the end. That's their thinking. But as we learned last week, Jesus surprises them. He says, yes, I'm the Messiah, but my first coming and second coming means there's going to be a time in between. And my main concern, Jesus says, is for you to live well in between my first coming and my second coming, the time between. Now, last week, Pastor Andrew unpacked for us the first part of this response, and Jesus emphasizes two main things. First, living well in this time between means that we must not be deceived. So we mentioned, Jesus says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by false Christ, false teaching. Secondly, on the heels of that, Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So this morning, as we continue his response, Jesus will say, Not only don't be deceived, don't be afraid, but don't predict the end. Don't predict when, but rather now, he will say, do prepare now. So our flow of our message and the flow of the text as Matthew continues Jesus' conversation is to say, don't predict when, prepare now. So let's dive in. Don't predict when. Look at me at verse 36, how this text begins. But concerning the day and hour, notice Jesus says... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, that means Jesus, but the Father only. Now, if you ever wondered, like me, and I have a very demented mind at times and imagination, if you ever wondered what is God's best kept secret, ever wondered that? I think this is a top candidate because the text is very explicit that God's best kept secret, perhaps, is when Jesus will return to this earth. Jesus emphasizes it, get this, five times in his response. That's five times. He doesn't want us to miss it. Verse 36, 42, 44, 50, chapter 25, verse 13. That's a ton of repetition. So over two millennia, isn't it amazing when you think about it, friends? Over two millennia since Jesus' first coming... It is stunning to think how many false teachers, cult leaders, pastors, gurus, writers, deceivers have given a particular date for Jesus' second coming. It's all the way through the church history from the first century on to today. And even more incomprehensible, despite Jesus' crystal clear teaching, is how many people have been so harmed and duped by false teaching. Just last week, Liz and I, my bride Liz and I were, were watching the Law and Order episode. They were not regulars, but I think it was maybe a rerun or something. We were just kind of flipping channels. I hope that doesn't ruin your day. We do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see emails coming. <laughs> what are you doing, Nelson? What are you doing? Anyway, so we were watching Law and Order, and I was amazed. I was absolutely amazed. There was a whole episode just this past week. All about the rapture and end times. This, this sort of cultic fringe group was doing all kinds of bad things because Jesus was coming back and they, the rapture had happened. And I was absolutely encouraged that the Hollywood scriptwriters actually got this really right. And I'm still stunned by this because they had a better grip on them than a lot of gurus and pastors and, and, and spiritual leaders. What impressed me was they actually quoted the detective when they were confronting this kooky weirdo leader who was duping all these people and doing all this bad stuff. They actually quoted Jesus' teaching on law and order. Matthew 24, verse 36, right here. I am dead serious. I was so amazed. And this woman detective says, see? You're an idiot, basically. Bravo to Hollywood. Jesus could not be more clear here if he wrote it in permanent ink on the sky. Jesus, who refers to himself as the Son, though, says something really stunning. You still with me? He says, even he doesn't know when. Wow. This is a troubling question, is it not? Jesus' words are crystal clear. But they raise an intense question. How can it be that Jesus doesn't know this? The gospel writer Matthew, all the way through our journey, up to these chapters, has gone out of his way to show Jesus is king of the universe and he has supernatural knowledge beyond all else. So in chapter 24, what is going on here? And if you're not yet a Christian, texts like this can raise doubts more. You may be very troubled by what seems to be another example of Christians speaking out of both sides of their mouths. See, Christians claim that Jesus is God himself. And with such a bold claim of truth comes the requirement of deity. That is, all knowledge, or in theological terms, omniscience. You can impress your friends with that big word. So what is going on here? Seems like a glaring contradiction, doesn't it? How could Jesus have limited knowledge... And yet know all things is difficult. And there is a bit of mystery here, I'm sure. From a category standpoint, nobody else has ever been both God and man. But ever since AD 451, which was a major council of the church getting together to decide what we were gonna believe, <laughs> what was true. It was the Council of Chalcedon, getting impression we're friends with that one too. Orthodox Christian faith has lived in this tension. Affirming, quote, Jesus is perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood. That Jesus is truly God and truly man. The New Testament writers declare this without blinking. Perfect humanity, perfect deity. Now from our vantage point, there are seriously Nuanced tensions. But may I suggest for your thinking, and as someone said the first service, you needed an hour to unpack that question, and I'm not going to go that far. May I suggest this is not a contradictory either-or assertion, but rather a complementary both-and framing. The Gospel writers present Jesus living on the basis of his human knowledge as he grows up, but also show how he could at any time call to mind anything from his infinite knowledge reservoir. And if you are considering Jesus and the Christian faith, which I hope you will, if you have not, can I just encourage you to keep an open mind? See, Jesus' dual nature actually does not have to be a barrier to belief at all. Rather, I think it's one of the most illuminating bridges to fuller understanding of the glory and wonder of Jesus. But it's a big question. Now, Jesus makes it very clear here that the timing of his return is a secret. But he also, notice, makes the point in his response that his timing of return, or his return will be absolutely surprising. Now, beginning in verse 37, Jesus describes at the end of the world is a moment in which there's lots of normalcy. He looks back to Noah in the time of the flood, and people are getting married and doing things, working and doing normal things. And it had rained a long time, many times. But one day it rained, an ordinary day, and it just kept raining and raining and raining. That's the idea. It was very ordinary. And the flood took everyone, or at least almost everyone, by surprise. Jesus says that's what the end is going to be like. To add to this, notice Jesus <laughs> urges his disciples to watchfulness. And he paints this vivid literary picture of a thief burglarizing a house in the middle of the night. Verses 43 through 44. Look with me there. It says, therefore, stay awake. For you do not know what your day or day. Your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, notice, you also must be ready for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is coming at an hour you do not expect. Wow. If there is any description of what Jesus is describing, for all you Downton Abbey fans of past and maybe present, you still watch it, this is Mr. Carson. This is it. This is a picture of first century Mister. I mean, he would never, his devotion to the family, his planning of detail is unwavering. If Mr. Carson had any idea that a thief would break into Downton Abbey, he would stay up all night and intercept him. That's the picture. Notice in Jesus' illustration, he wraps two commands around it. In verse 42, he says, stay awake, stay awake. And then he wraps it in verse 44, be ready, be ready. So the timing of Jesus' return is not only a best-kept secret, it is going to be a big surprise. See, not only don't we know when Jesus will return, it will be a time in many ways we won't expect him to return. And this is important to grasp. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible The theme of human history guided by God's hand has a crescendo that ends. And that crescendo is painted with the brilliant painting of normalcy and abnormalcy together on the canvas of time. The timing of Jesus' second coming is surprising. But what is not surprising is how we should live in the meantime. And this is where Jesus focuses. He says to his disciples, stop trying to predict when. When? Put away your charts. (laughs) Focus on preparing now. That's where he goes. And in chapter 24, verse 45, all the way through chapter 25, verse 13, which is really one unit, Jesus strikes two chords of wisdom of how to live in the time between. The first one is this. Work like there's no tomorrow. Notice in verses 45-47, Jesus highlights fruitfulness in the workplace. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Jesus paints readiness for the end. This picture, not in terms of hunkering down in a survivalist mode, but in everyday ordinary vocational faithfulness. For Jesus, a ready life for the end is a surprisingly ordinary life every day. Eugene Peterson brilliantly paraphrases this text. And I'm going to read this text because I think he hits it out of the park. Eugene Peterson paraphrases these two verses. Who here qualifies for the job of overseeing the kitchen? A person the master can depend on to feed the workers on time each day. Now notice what he says. Someone the master can drop in unannounced and always find him doing his job. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. So if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do today? Jesus' first response is basically to say, get to work. Be faithful in your vocational calling. Whether you are paid for your work or not, your work matters. Writing to the Thessalonian Christians later, the Apostle Paul will affirm their heightened expectancy of Jesus' return, but he will completely jump on them for their irresponsible behavior, their lack of faithfulness. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says to them in chapter 4, and he echoes Jesus' teaching here. He says, but we urge you to do this more and more. And to aspire to live, what, a quiet life, to mind your own business, (laughs) to work with your own hands as we instructed you. Being ready for the end whenever it comes is not a flashy deal. It's about faithful fruitfulness in our vocations, in life, in our work, in our families. Martin Luther, (laughs) uh, the great Protestant reformer, was asked, What he would do if the world, he knew the world was going to end tomorrow. Don't you love his response? He says, If I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would plant a tree. Or we may say, If I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I might study harder for my test. I might start a new business. I might plan a new product. I might establish a new institution. However, God has called you to contribute to the world, and He created you with intimacy and accomplishment in mind. Whether you're a student, stay at home spouse, a retiree, a business owner, a professional, a person with a trade, Jesus is saying to you and to me the most important thing as a follower of Jesus of being ready for when Jesus can return is to be faithful and fruitful in the work he has called you to do. To bloom where you're planted. So why would brilliant King Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, why would he emphasize vocational faithfulness so much when it comes to being ready for his return? It is because the Bible, from the very beginning to the end, tells us that we were created with intimacy and accomplishment, with relationship and work in mind as image bearers. The Bible teaches the work we are called to do. Remember, work is fundamentally contribution, not compensation. Whatever work we are called to do, it's a primary way we worship God every day. It's a primary way we're spiritually formed into Christ-likeness. Our workplace and wherever we serve It's a primary place we are a gospel witness. And it's a primary place we love our neighbors, both local and global. You and I were created with work in mind. We are redeemed with work in mind. And one day in the new heavens we will work, yet without thorns and thistles. Hey, yeah. Who is right? In verses 45 to 51, notice how Jesus contrasts the wise worker with the foolish, the slothful one who is not ready for the master's return. And perhaps if you've studied the New Testament, you know that Jesus' words here are some of the most chilling words he's ever given. Jesus says, don't predict when I'm going to come back. Prepare now. Be diligent. Work like there's no tomorrow. But secondly, notice what he says. Live like there's no end today. There's no end in sight. Live like that. Beginning in chapter 25, Jesus tells this amazing story. It's about a wedding. We love wedding stories. The story of a wedding is embedded in the first century cultural context, but there's something across all weddings and all cultures. When you plan for a wedding, you prepare for what? The unexpected. If you're a wedding planner, you plan for the unexpected. And as a pastor who's done many, many weddings, I can tell you many, many stories. You don't want to listen to all of them. Of all the crazy things that happen at weddings. But let me tell you one. It was my own wedding. When we were about ready to give our vows before the pastor, the organist, who had forgot to turn the organ off, leaned up over the organ right when we were about to say "I do." Our <clears throat> <laughs> How do you prepare for that? There are worse things I could share with you, I won't. But here's the picture of this story, and read it carefully in Matthew 25. There's a delay, an unexpected delay. Now here's the cultural context, and then you can read it carefully this week. In Jesus' time, marriage custom was for the groom and his friends to leave his home. Got that? And to go to the home of the bride. That's where the marriage ceremony took place in first century Israel. The ceremony was conducted, and then the entire wedding party returned to the bridegroom's home for this massive celebration late into the night. Big time party. Got that? So what happens in Jesus' story is the bridegroom, this is the runaway bridegroom, not the runaway bride. They actually run away, but... He's delayed a long time. Five of the bridesmaids prepare for the unexpected delay. Five don't. And it's tied to how they see in the dark, their oil lamps. You can read it, but it's the idea of preparation. And the big wedding party is about to start, right? The big night. Five of the bridesmaids get to the wedding party late because they're not prepared. And five get there on time. Five... That are prepared are invited in to the party. The five who don't, the door is shut, locked. So, what is Jesus saying? He's making a comparison, isn't he? And the conclusion is chilling. The five bridesmaids who are unprepared found it too late and they were turned away. Jesus is making a comparison when he comes back. At that moment, it's too late for those who aren't prepared. And he says, so prepare now. And he's saying, what is true in the bridesmaid story is true for followers as they wait for me. Readiness for the unexpected matters. Kenneth Bailey, who's one of the finest New Testament scholars in the parable, says this, and I think this is the main point. He says it really well. He says, life in the kingdom of God requires commitment to the long haul. The long haul. Jesus' second coming may occur any day, perhaps even today, tomorrow, but we must live like it may be much further down the road. The Apostle Peter, who understood this, heard these words, said what? To God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. God has a very different understanding of time than we do. And Jesus finishes his gripping story with these words. Look at me at verse 13. He says, watch, therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour. In other words, he's saying, don't predict when it's going to end. Prepare now. Readiness matters. In our broader church context, we're a part of a larger denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And we highlight the importance in our doctrinal statement. I'm going to highlight this. I don't often do this, but I think this is such a really good balance. In our doctrinal sin, we give the sense of the expectancy of Jesus' return, but preparation for a long delay. Look at how it's written. We believe in the personal, bodily and pre- premillennial, me to say, premillennial return of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a mouthful, but I want you to focus on this. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands what? Constant expectancy, and as our blessed hope motivates the believer, notice the three things: to Godly living, sacrificial service and energetic mission. So the question for us in taking this to our life this week is, are we ready? Are you ready? Let me suggest three takeaways this morning for all of us to consider. First, put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in Christ. A ready life is a surprisingly hopeful life. And hopelessness, isn't it true in our culture, is epidemic. Our fellow students, workers, neighbors, family members, hopelessness is rampant today. So what are you putting your hope in? Political parties, physical health, intellect, technology, financial independence. They aren't bad things, but there's not what we put our hope in. Prophet Jeremiah profoundly shapes this well in Jeremiah 9, 24 and 25. And you hear the echoing of Jesus' words here. Jesus knew Jeremiah's writings cold in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah says this, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom... Let not the strong boast of their might or the riches boast in their riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that they understand and know me. What he means here, they know me intimately, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. How are you doing in the hope department these days? Have you embraced the good news of the gospel? Do you know Christ is your personal Savior? Have you experienced the forgiveness that he offers, the new life he offers, and the hope he gives? See, two things are very uncertain in life, aren't they? That is when the end will come and when your end and my end will come. So Jesus is saying, don't wait for one day. It may be too late. We often say procrastination is a problem, but it can be more than a problem. It can be deadly. So, are you sharing the hopeful news of the gospel? Those of you who are followers of Jesus here this morning, are you sharing that with others at school, at work, with fellow students, colleagues at work? Jesus offers true hope. He is the only one that offers true hope in the world. And so, let me ask you humbly and passionately if you are not sharing Christ with others, what are you waiting for? Jesus has a sense of urgency because of what's at stake. So are you ready? Jesus says, put your hope in me, in Christ. Secondly, he says, cultivate an attentive life. You will notice in the text the language of alertness, alertness, and a ready life is a surprisingly attentive life. Jesus highlights the importance of being alert all the time. Don't go to sleep, he says. Stay attentive, stay on point, cultivate an attentive life. And one of the most important ways that we cultivate an attentive life is to pursue the spiritual disciplines that Jesus modeled and invites us to embrace. Spiritual disciplines such as studying the scriptures, prayer, fasting, solitude, and service are not meritorious to God, but they foster intimacy with Jesus and they give us heightened alertness to what God is doing in our lives and those around us and in the world. Simone Weil, a wonderful French writer, said it so brilliantly. She says, love is focused attention love is focused attention and Jesus is saying the greatest sin perhaps the greatest peril to your life and mine is the sin of inattentiveness and while attentiveness is a very personal reality it is not a solitary journey the new testament writer of hebrews connects the importance of local church fellowship with the alertness to jesus second coming and let me read hebrews 10:23 and 20 through 25 and listen carefully The Hebrew writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now listen to what he says, but encouraging one another more and more and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the big day. One of the most compelling reasons to find and be a part of a vital local church, and if you're not a part of one, I encourage you to consider us, is the attentiveness it cultivates in your life, your friendships, your marriage, and to others, as well as to what Christ and the Holy Spirit's doing in the world. Attentiveness is a collective discipline, waiting for the one we are attending on to return. Jesus says, put your hope in me. Cultivate an attentive life. And third, I love this part, and we're going to unpack more next week, Lord willing, should he tarry. is glory in the ordinary life. A ready life is a surprisingly ordinary life. Do you see it? One of my favorite writers, uh, she's now with the Lord, is Ann Kemel. And she said it so brilliantly many years ago. She says, life is filled with ordinary days. And what you do on your ordinary days is what makes your life extraordinary. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. When you are a follower of Jesus, there is nothing ordinary about your life or what you are called to do tomorrow, whether you're paid for it or not. Whether you are helping some little kid change a diaper or, you know, unpacking your minivan or cleaning your minivan of Cheerios everywhere. Or you are firing someone or hiring someone or being a student or studying for a test. Nothing is ordinary if it is done unto God as a follower of Jesus. It is extraordinary. And that is what readiness is about. Christian faith declares the importance of the little things. Faithfulness in the little things. And it's in the little things of your life where you bring light and hope to a broken and dark world. Glory in the ordinary. Faithfulness is in the little things, and it's a big thing to God. There are no little things in your life this week. No little people. Just glory in the ordinary. So if you knew the world would end tomorrow... What would you do today? Jesus says, don't predict, but do prepare. And Jesus says, put your hope in me, in Christ. Cultivate an attentive life and glory in the ordinary. Let's pray. Lord, we wrestle with our lack of understanding. Some of us have been abused by false teachers. Some of us have great cynicism about, quote, the end days. But Lord, nourish in all of our hearts, wherever we are, a sense of hopeful expectancy, but also a sense that perhaps it's a long haul before you return. Lord, teach us. Raise in our hearts the expectancy of our coming king as we sing to you. In Jesus' name.